When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Kennel, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Midori Yamamura, author of Yayoi Kusama, Inventing the Singular. This is an absolutely wonderful book about the famed contemporary artist Yayoi Kusama, who I say is a contemporary artist, but she has in fact been active internationally for over 70 years now. And though the book is titled Yayoi Kusama, it actually draws a history of global art out of Kusama's long transnational career by examining how key facets of Kusama's art reflect contemporary debates and issues affecting people around the world. Inventing the Singular is the first book-length treatment of Kusama outside of exhibit catalogs in English. And it is just a, such a fascinating book. Um, well, so I would like to welcome Midori Yamamura to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Okay. I am a feminist art historian, and I teach art history at CUNY Kingsborough. Um, I became very interested in Kusama because uh, she was in a very visible place during the 60s, and it was a very important period. And she says that in some of her biographies, but when I started writing this this book as a dissertation, which was really like around 2006, she was placed as an kind of like an outsider artist, and I was very interested in why the society looks at women artists of color, not as part of the mainstream history, but they get displaced because of their gender and um, ethnicity, and that became my... Uh, point of interest, and I started uh, this research. It's 
interesting um, that that was part of your uh, interest initially because that is really something that jumped out at me almost on every page of this book that it's about Yayoi Kusama, but it isn't just about her. In in a way, it's really a history of the art industry that we have today and where it came from uh, with uh, sort of using Yayoi Kusama as a focal, focus for that history. So maybe you could say that I used her as kind of like uh, the device to trying to show how the society is structured in a way that it kind of like rejects artists of color, but at the same time, by knowing this kind of um, structure of the society, we may be able to accept these women or artists of color in more unbiased way. So that was more of my general hope when I was writing this book. That brings up so many um, different structures as well, because if you talk about an artist like Kusama, who um, began her career in Japan, moved to Seattle, then moved uh, to New York, but also traveled and exhibited in Europe and really around the world, there are different uh, societies involved and all of them have their different structures. And she, as you show in your book, she was very engaged with people, um, even writing letters to people around the world um, long before she broke out on the international scene, which perhaps we should start there. Um, well, we know Yayoi Kusama today from these ex- uh, very recent uh, mirrored installations and uh, polka-dotted rooms and infinity net paintings. She actually started out in Japan as an artist of Nihonga, or a sort of traditional Japanese painting. What drew her to this very traditional medium? Um, I think there were not really any... Um particular alternative to that because of the war and there was a very uh, strong like nationalism that was going on during the war time and uh, I think her first teacher uh, who was teaching at her elementary school was a Nihonga teacher and because she knew that she wanted to study art uh, to more extensive length, she started uh, studying with this uh, Mr. Hibino, I think that was his name, as a private student at his uh, art school, personal art school, and that's how I think she began. But and then she, after, I, I think World War II was very instrumental uh, to Kusama that the war and the, the the war and very strong nationalism that really uh, made her to long for something larger and more international. And when you think about international art, it wasn't really this Nihonga, but it was uh, oil painting the Western style art, which was more widely accepted worldwide. And uh, that's how she left Nihonga around 1949. But initially she was part of this uh, Sozo Bijutsu or like 
the constructive art uh, exhibition group that was trying to create Nihonga more into contemporary forms. So uh, that can tell you how much she was in, determined to become a contemporary artist, even though the material was very traditional. So she's very interested in um, this contemporary evolution in art. And she moves from Nihonga to, as you said, oil paintings. Is there anything that she retained or did she just completely um, abandon uh, everything that she had learned through Nihonga? That's a very interesting question because Nihonga itself is not really so traditional, I don't think. It has very radical way of exploring uh, the materials. For instance, you really have to create your own paint by mixing it with glue and using water-based uh, uh, medium. So I think she got something out of Nihonga, like creating uh, the color itself or like, you know, the material uh, that can be constructed by following some traditional uh, method. And uh, initially, she didn't know how to paint in oil. So I, I have a pretty extensive section in my book about that. So she was using some Nihonga technique by um, adding a supplemental paper back of the uh, canvas, which she was creating from uh, some discarded uh, bags from the family seed businesses and so on. But I think because she was a self-taught uh, oil painter, uh, some Nihonga techniques or like uh, the way they think about materials remained with her and maybe that uh, might have affected her in later process that she became very original artist. She does seem to be exhibiting um, originality even in uh, that initial stage of her career then. And it seems uh, you mentioned that uh, she is very much sort of responding to or working within larger social structures. It sounds like uh, the availability of training is one of the first social structures that has an effect on her art and her career's progression. What are some of the other ways that uh, the the structure of how the art industry works um, in Japan um, affected her initial development as an author, or as an artist? My that's, right. um, that's a really nice question. Um, I think she comes from this family that owned a seed business. So when you go to her hometown in Matsumoto, their family houses are the largest complex right um, behind the Matsumoto station. So she comes from this business family and she knew like how the market works. She was, since very early on, she was very aware that women have difficult time getting established and you know seriously received by the art world, but at the same time, she knew how to appear more attractively because of her gender, and there are lesser like female artists. So I think she used all of that 
for instance, in relation to public publicity, and she was a very, very um, skillful public relations person. Uh, I think at the second art exhibition, solo art exhibition she had in Matsumoto in 1952, she and her mother went to different newspaper companies and they were selling, you know, the news of their exhibition to be uh, published in the newspaper. And that kind of like publicity, she knew that it was going to help her to uh, be somewhere. And then I think at the end or during the exhibition, it was only like a two-day exhibition, but she made uh, some approach through different contemporary artists in Nagano to get to get the contact of uh, a very influential uh, art critic in Tokyo, uh, whose name is Takiguchi Shuzo. And uh, I think that really helped her to be somewhere uh, within three years in Tokyo art scene. So she knew exactly which buttons to be pushed, and she's very determined to study about uh, such a social background. Now that, um, it's one thing to know how the the art world uh, or whatever industry you work in work works in your home country. Um, when she moved to the United States, was she similarly um, keeping track of the art industry movers and shakers? And did she continue to sort of uh, use those connections or build those connections so intentionally? Or did she have to start over from scratch? How, how did that transition go? Uh, I think she needed to create a new connection in New York. And she did that by uh, mining into a Japanese-American communities because at the time her English wasn't very good. So she needed to have some people who can speak her language. So she had some uh, Japanese-Americans who were helping her, such as uh, Mike Kanemitsu, or um, there was another person who uh, shared her studio during this time. And she quickly understood about who are the most important collectors and which galleries to be, um, which galleries are very active in the art world. And there was a story which I uh, found out through one of the uh, artists who lived in her same building, Ed Clark that uh, she was an art handler at Sydney Janice Gallery, and Kusama knew that it was a very important abstract expressionist art gallery. So she told Ed that when the Sydney Janice is not there, she was going to bring her own client, so can you hang my pictures on your wall? <laughs> and she was very determined. Um, Unfortunately, he couldn't do that, but she is very clever. Uh, a lot of people said like she was a very foxy woman and uh, she knew how to use social structure, you know, to be successful as an artist, which was a very interesting point, which I learned by 
studying about uh, uh, notes or uh, interviewing people who were still alive, like in the early 21st century, about her uh, back in the 60s. So when she is um, sort of, I don't want to say manipulating people, but cannily using social and industrial connections like this. Um, is this tied in to how she is rather famously or how her art is rather famously tied to her own autobiography? Uh, that's a very difficult question because in the 60s, she wasn't really foregrounding autobiography so much that nobody knew um, her as a mentally like, disturbed artist or anything like that. Um, people did think like, you know, she's very crazy, but it's not about mental illness, but she could do some things, uh, you know, she, very obsessively and very determined ways. So uh, that was, I think, attraction of her, like, you know, she was a very attractive uh, person as an artist because she was very dedicated to, the, to art. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes it got onto people's nerves. But uh, she did use uh, biography in order to come out from the uh, namelessness. So when she went back to Japan, and I have to say that uh, Kusama really wanted to be successful internationally. So when she was being very successful in the New York art world with uh, infinity net paintings, which she called net paintings during the 50s and the early 60s, uh, she made sure that uh, all the press materials will be sent back to Japan and to her uh, art critic friends. But when she went back to Japan in 1973, People really neglected her because she was an older woman, and uh, you know this is a very sexist uh, uh, society. So they didn't want to take her seriously, and it's very ironical that in 19, I believe, 75, she came up came up with a new version of her biography, which is more focused on her uh, obsessive compulsive neurosis. She got more popular with that, and people wanted to buy her art. And uh, there is like a mad, mad woman in attic. Um, I think it's like an anthology of women's writing. But you know, the madness is something which is very uh, appealing, and it seems like that really uh, started changing. <laughs> the course of her uh, artwork sale and also at the same time her um, fame. So the sale and fame came together with this kind of like a, um, fabricated biography. So she has many biographies, like when you go, uh, you mine into her uh, archives and there is a, a very good 
archival materials, uh, which is kept at the University of Texas, Austin, you can almost see all of the uh, materials until about 1990. Uh, that you will see in Kusama Studio in Tokyo. The same materials are kept in the University of Texas, Austin. And there are like a, a file about her CVs and she's so constantly like reinventing herself at different occasions. So uh, while I was going to the graduate school, I took uh, um, one year a seminar on biography. And after one year of discussing about different biographies, all the fellows come, came up with the concept um, to the um, final opinion that uh, every biography is kind of like a fiction. And uh, therefore, it's really difficult to take a biography at the face value, but I think there are very many uh, valid points in biographies as well. So I think it's very difficult to sort of like select which section of the biography you might like to use in your research. And in my case, I had an, op an opportunity to uh, reorganize the uh, archival materials that was sent from Tokyo, uh, from New York to Tokyo, and the studio was looking for someone who can do this uh, work. So I had an opportunity to go over all the archival materials which Kusama uh, sent back from New York and. Uh, that really told me about some of the uh, biographical records were a little bit downplayed and others were more uh, uh, highlighted. And uh, that's when I started thinking about my dissertation as something more um, of an archival-based social um, research as opposed to biographical completely biographical interpretation, but in a way, it's really like a critical biography of uh, Kusama, which uh, was published without really her consent because we were able to use the fair use law for my book. Well, it's certainly rare that biographies are uh, approved in advance by the subject, certain, uh, but it's also really fascinating if we think of her today in this in terms of this uh, uh, mental health image that we have of a related uh, mental health related image that we have of her and she wasn't doing that um, during the 1950s and the 1960s she wasn't uh, portraying herself that way but as you've told us um, she was advertising herself very much how was she portraying herself then um, when you know what was she trying to to use to get people interested in herself and her work uh say in the 1950s and 1960s i think in the 50s she wasn't she was still settling down but in the 60s i know that she had kind of like an office uh within her studio and she had writers like uh, uh writers for village boys or like people who can write about art 
and she was very careful with constructing narratives for her uh, art exhibitions. In fact, each art exhibition was taken as like a project, and uh, she usually had certain narrative for each art exhibition, and that went out with the show. So she was a very good public relations person. But at the time, she wasn't really focusing on so much about uh, her mental, uh, maybe mental illness is not a very good word to use, so uh, her anxiety neurosis. And uh, uh, she knew that she had some like anxiety neurosis and obsessive compulsive uh, neurosis, which appears in some of the doctor's notes when you go over her uh, archival materials. But she wasn't focused on that. She was more focused on how to uh, put herself within the larger like art world in the, during the 60s. So she was very keen about what's happening in the art world. And he she wanted to bring her uh, art very much attuned to the New York art world. But at the same time, I think she did have a lot to say because she comes from very peculiar background of experiencing the war and totalitarian society, which she couldn't agree so much. And uh, I think that's something which she really protested once Vietnam War uh, started uh, happening and the government had sole control over people. And she was very determined to uh, liberate people's mind in a uh, way that is very different from conservative uh, worldview. And when she came to New York, she came to New York at this very particular uh, time period in terms of psychiatric treatment that uh, in the United States, psychotropic drugs came uh, from Nazi Germany. So the 50s was really the time when this scientific treatment started happening and she happened to have these psychiatric conditions. So she was treated with medication. And I think that really uh, influenced her later uh, works, which are more in tune, attuned to uh, art. It's interesting. Um, you mentioned psychedelic art. I've seen Kusama's art uh, and Kusama herself compared to a wide variety of artistic movements and groups um, like surrealism and the, the Dutch Knoll group. Um, and I wasn't ever sure why she seemed to be compared to everyone un- until really I read your book. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how Kusama or Kusama's relationships with some of the the many new um, artistic groups and movements that arose after World War II? Um, I think she was more in agreement with European artists who went under very similar conditions as her, like in Germany or Italy. They were like Japan's allies during World War II. And they were bombed. Uh, they were governed by uh, totalitarian, uh, authoritarian, uh, 
political leaders, and uh, um, therefore they looked for something which was far more free, and they wanted to build very um, new the, their art with new forms and new media. There was an exhibition in 1960 which was called New Forms, New Media Exhibition. And I think that really uh, represented some of these uh, changes which were happening during the turn of the 1960. And she was very much in agreement with those artists who were uh, creating things uh, which didn't exist until then, like... For instance, German artist Otto Pine was using light as and fire as his medium to create his art. Or if Klein was creating his own like blue pigment, which putatively never existed in the world, and Kusama was very much part of this uh, wider movement uh, which was happening in. Uh, Allied countries such as like Germany or Italy, I think Netherlands was um, occupied by Germans or uh, Japan too, like Gutai artists who Kusama didn't really get that <laughs> along with, but <laughs> because she was being very competitive, but um, she, I think, could be, if she stayed in Japan, she could have been uh, identified, you know, with Gutai because they wanted to create something that never really was regarded as an art. And she was venturing into many different materials and techniques uh, during the 60s, which were very exciting. And she was able to venture into those because I think, you know, her world was much larger back, back then. Uh, had a lot of association with many different artists, like uh, the artists in Switzerland, uh, Christian Negel. Uh, he was using mirrors, for instance, you know, to express himself. And uh, I think, you know, she was very, very sophisticated uh, in observing uh, the art world. And I think that really worked to uh, positive way to her uh, practice. I suppose that makes sense. Uh, you can't be a, a master advertiser of your work unless you can sort of speak the language that people are expecting to hear uh, in terms of what you're trying to do. Um, to that end, you mentioned uh, that her art in this period in, in particular is sort of reacting to nationalism and in particular fascism. Um, and there was an interesting term uh, that came up several times in your book, uh, subjective autonomy. Could you tell me a little bit about Kusama and how sort of subjective uh, autonomy, uh, well, even aside from Kusama, why was this term important and how does it relate to Kusama's work? Well, Japan is a very, very communal society. You know, people are valued by being a group player. But I think it went too far during World War II. So right after the war, the individualism was something which was very new to Japanese people. And... Uh, it kind of like happens, I think, during the Meiji time, 
um, there was a moment when uh, during the Meiji and uh, turn into Taisho period, there was a moment when the subjectivity uh, was getting a lot of attention. But uh, I think after World War II, there was a momentum where, like you know, people are very much mining into uh, identity issues and. Uh, Kusama, I don't think she thought like I'm like a subjectivity person or like determining about this new theory or something like that. But I think she was very, very individual and has a extremely uh, strong character. And uh, I think she fits completely uh, and comfortably into this uh, subjective autonomy uh, narrative after World War II. Mm. I think she wasn't only alone, like uh, the Gutai artist Kazuo Shiraga, for instance. She, he tried to paint with his feet because he wanted to create something which never really happened before. Or uh, this artist, Tadaaki Kwayama, who was trained as in Nihonga, and I think he used more uh, Nihonga technique, more adi- more... Um, strategically in his uh, minimalist painting and he was really like uh, inventing uh, the new colors and uh, new forms and he continuously did it and right now he creates paintings with titanium which continuously changes color that the color doesn't settle down which is a very amazing work and it really all of these like different uh, experiments belong to uh, post-World War II um, artistic endeavor, which is very interesting to me. Well, you certainly make it sound fascinating in your book, where you're you're constantly comparing um, what Kusama is doing with what other artists are doing and how her work fits into these uh, international developments in the art industry. And um, over the, as you trace Kusama's artistic development, we see certain shifts in her work, um, where her early work is on the smaller scale, uh, for example. And then when she moves to New York, suddenly she's getting bigger and bigger, or she's making bigger and bigger pieces until they're the size of a wall. Um, wh- why does she make that shift? Uh, I think. One big reason is really like she was trying to adjust her painting to the New York art world. And New York, you know, you have so much more space in your uh, artist studio. The galleries are so much larger and uh, it has in its own like independent rooms. Uh, in Japan, for instance, she was showing in the places like uh, the department galleries that's like you know extension of uh, the vending floor so it's a very different narrative so the environment was one thing which really influenced her but also i think um existentialism or like phenomenology was really like changing at world war uh, after world war two and uh, um, a lot of people use the term infinity, and I was looking at that word, and there was this one uh, phenomen- phenomenological philosopher, uh, Emmanuel Levinas, who uses infinity as like how his book title, 
and uh, it's a very interesting uh, concept which is very much in line with like subjective autonomy that he was very interested in how people make judgment which is different from um, conservative view that you have a convention of looking at people through biases and he tried to make that shift with his phenomenology by um, the, this concept of face where people need to go closer to the person's face and uh, at this like you know close vicinity you start seeing vulnerability of human being or like face as an individual as opposed to more like theoretical or universal faces and uh, that really um, I think changed the humanity's being and it seems like the Jewish artists in New York, such as Barnett Newman or Mark Rothko, who are creating the piece, the paintings that needed to be seen from up close. And uh, very interestingly, Kusama was very much drawn to these uh, color field painters. And uh, that's one of the reasons why she started creating very large paintings, because it's an um, environment and then her paintings were very white. So in order to make uh, more careful observation, the people really needed to come closer. And I think that was one of the uh, charm of Infinity Net painting, that she got something from New York, which was very different from how Japanese painters were painting, which was more like compositions and design, and she was creating something completely different at the time. That does certainly, I mean, to jump forward a few decades here, even if we think about her work today, uh, like the Infinity Mirror Rooms, which are meant for generally about one person at a time to enter, um, it is very much, uh, and I should say, too, her Infinity Mirror Rooms in particular uh, took off in part because people wanted to go take selfies in them. Right. So mm, I mean, her art does seem to, to really, even as she has transformed uh, the media that she works with over the years, um, her art really does draw people in. I, I wonder if you could tell us about how she starts drawing people in um, when she shifts from things like the... Uh, oil paintings, which are the infinity net paintings, um, to something like her happenings? That's a good question. Um, I have written my own observation about that in, in the book, but I think one reason is because of this psychedelic culture which was coming during that time. And uh, of course, I think it comes from the color field painters because they were creating uh, something like a stage or uh, environment uh, and uh, uh, the artists like uh, Louis Nabelson was creating an environment at 1959 MoMA exhibition of like like 18 uh, American artists show and she was looking at all of that and uh, I think from the net painting, the transition into the environment was so much easier because it was already like 33 feet long net painting was <laughs> um, the environment, you know. 
And she really wanted to create this kind of like repetitive visions, which um, she, which was a driving force behind her. But by using the mirrors, she can make multiple of same things over and over and so much easier. And I think that's when uh, mirrors came in. But the mirrors were also about uh, uh, reflection of your own self. And I think it has a very existential element. Uh, Christian Miguel, uh, who was a Swiss artist and who was creating the uh, artwork using mirrors, I think Kusama had seen his work uh, at some measure, there were some printed materials that were sent from Nulu artists, and he was part of the Nulu exhibition. In fact, he hung Nulu exhibition, I think, in 1962. So she knew all these different things, and I think it's a very nice uh, solution that she came up with these um, mirrors, but when you go over the archival materials, it's very interesting that she was already like thinking a lot about using lights and sound, which was more in tune, attuned, more in tune with the psychedelic light show, which was happening during um, 1965. 65 was very, very interesting time when uh, for instance, the artist like Aldo Tambellini was creating uh, intermedia, which was for electromedia uh, shows, which was really combining the light reflections and sound and dance and all these different elements that came together. And then there was an expanded cinema festival. Uh, I think that was also November 1965. And uh, uh, Kusama, of course, like responded to this latest uh, uh, trend. And in her case, she was not only looking at uh, New York, but she was also looking at the Netherlands and Germany. And she came up with this really significant uh, mirror rooms, <laughs> which I think attracted a lot of New Yorkers at the time. It's interesting. You talk about them... Um... You, you, you discussed uh, those different works as being New York, but am I uh, misremembering or is the, the 1965 pieces you mentioned, weren't those um, off in Western New York in Buffalo? Oh, okay. I think 1965, the uh, Half-Fast Mirror Room, I think it was shown in like November 65. That took place in... Upper West Side at Richard Kesselian Gallery. So it, it wasn't in Buffalo, it was in uh, New York City. But I, I think there was an exhibition which is called Multiple View or Multiple Perspective, and it was about and the show of you know the repetitive tendencies. And I think that was planned to be toward in different venues and she was part her, her i think her mirror work was part of that show if i remember it correctly i was um just thinking that you discussed at one point um the the media environments um 
And I, th- I thought she had developed those in part outside of New York City and then moved back in. Uh, but Oh, yes. Um, yes, you are very correct. And this was for uh, Zero, Zero on Sea exhibition that was going to take place in Den Haag in the Netherlands. And she was creating the, the, um, the mirror room with flashing lights for, for their exhibition because she knew that she was going to show with uh, zero artists and they were very uh, technology orientated and I think she thought she needed to create something that can compete with their uh, expression. So again there then we see that Kusama is is very in tune with developments in the global art world and she is um keeping track of them, being inspired by them, but also working with these new developments, which I think is particularly an interesting, uh, or you you tackle that issue of inspiration um, with a lovely degree of nuance in the book, because I know it can get, um, people can get uh, very excited about inspiration and Kusama because there have been accusations that people uh, basically took her works. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not to say well, I uh, agree completely, but uh, you know there are the the comments about uh, like uh, Oldenburg and his uh, use uh, creation of stuffed sculptures only after seeing Kusama do so. And I thought you had a very lovely nuanced take on this in your book. Could you tell us about sort of how uh, you see Kusama's um, relationship with some of those more uh, prominent uh, uh, artists, particularly in New York, like Oldenburg, like Lucas Samara, or um, Andy Warhol? Right. I'm not quite sure about her relationship with Lucas Samara. I think he really liked her because he created a lot of portraits which looks like uh, cars, uh, you know, bearing like polka dot type of thing uh, in the 70s. Uh, but Kleis Oldenburg was really the point where I got drawn into a historical background of Kusama. <laughs> she and he had shown in a place called Green Gallery in June 1962. And at that time, she premiered uh, sewn soft sculptures, whereas he wasn't sewing the uh, pieces. But right after that, he had booked the gallery to as like his studio, and then there he created his first sewn sculptures. So that was something which I really did um, subtle historical research background research to see how much of Kusama's biography was true and um, in fact this particular incident she didn't remember that the show was in June. Uh, Later on in the interview she told people that it was in September and it's actually September was Klaus Oldenburg's exhibition at uh, the Green Gallery so she was pretty wrong with the fact which was very interesting. But um, when you look at this whole like New York scene in the uh, up Lower East Side, they were really like friends and tears. They were looking at each other um, and uh, 
Kusama was maybe like gave some inspiration to Oldenburg, but I'm sure that Oldenburg gave her an installation, uh, inspiration. Oldenburg gave her an inspiration to show her work in a very unconventional places like 1966 Venice Biennial, which was um, an official uh, show, which um, she asked her Italian galleries to organize it during the Venice Biennial. So there were all these um, give and take among the artists, and I think that really made her a quintessential New Yorker artist because, you know, she was really part of this um, ambit, like, you know, the within, like, artist group, and uh, that's one of the reasons why she had artistic development was uh, um, very vigorous during her stay in New York. After she went back to Japan, she sort of like uh, recreated um, re or repeated herself, you know, in, in Japan because uh, she didn't really come, come across very new ideas, whereas uh, being uh, in this very competitive New York art world, I think she came up with many, many different ideas. And I think that is really not only her, but I think it's, you know, who she was with and how she was stimulated during this time. And I'd like to ask you a bit about her return to Japan, because uh, as you've described it and as you uh, depict within your book, she is very much an integral part of this uh, nascent uh, global art network uh, that is developing in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, she's well known, I think it's fair to say. And yet then in the, you know, she does return um, to Japan and we don't really hear much about her until uh, she is sort of resuscitated in, I believe, 1989 um, internationally. Whereas people like uh, Oldenburg and Andy Warhol, we've continued to hear about throughout all that time. Um, what, so what factors led to people maybe not talking about Kusama's work as much uh, there? Well, I think 1969 was a very peculiar time period when the New York art scene became very conservative. And a lot of like, radical artists like Otto Pine or like uh, Aldo Tamperini, uh, Kusama as well, they all left New York because there was, in 1970, there was a Met exhibition of American art and it was very much constructed from art viewers' point of view, like how they had seen what is American art. And it didn't reflect, you know, the leftist artists. And Nixon was someone, I think, also, like, need to be blamed because he had this law and order um policies and uh, you know uh, they banned uh, drugs and they banned all these like um, activities I think there were very strict surveillance uh, which was imposed by FBI during the 70s as well so I think one reason why Kusama's artwork wasn't just talked a lot is because she was more in tune with uh, hippie movement like uh, Timothy Leary or John Lennon 
and uh, didn't have that kind of like Lennon's status. So she was kind of like lost because uh, it was going against the uh, society of the uh, 70s, uh, which started changing in 1969, I think. Uh, Andy Warhol, on the other hand, uh, I've read a lot of some, I, I read some like negative uh, review of Warhol's exhibition in the 60s because uh, he was uh, so much more conformist that she, his piece can be seen both as radical and conservative. And he, he did uh, like very beautiful things and he liked to paint uh, surprisingly and she, he goes back to painting in the 70s. Um, and uh, someone like he who Kusama was seeing uh, as a real like uh, arch rival because she couldn't agree with everything he did. <laughs> so, um, they were very competitive or she was obsessively competitive with him. I was really surprised while I was doing a research. She was really like going after Warhol by selecting exactly the same venue where he was showing and then trying to sort of like uh, wipe away his sort of like stain with her own like more radical, radically, um, I wonder, a psychedelic art. So there's a very interesting competition. And uh, I think in the 70s, as the society became very conservative, I think she lost her ground. But more uh, realistic uh, reason why she went back to Japan was because of the health reason that she needed to get some operation. And then while she was in Japan, her parents were getting older and they were uh, dying. I think she lost her father and mother uh, during the 70s. And I think that's one of the reasons why she had to stay in Japan. And uh, she decided to stay there um, also because of her psychiatric conditions that she is now like very dependent on the psychotropic drugs and she needs some like psychiatric psychiatrist's help uh, but it's not that um, she's crazy or insane but I think the psychiatrist needs to um, hold her more um, mild kind of like anxiety neurosis that when she gets very depressed she cannot paint so uh, my friend did an interview with her psychiatrist and he said my task is really to keep her uh, psych psych psychological condition the best to be able to uh, keep painting that is a fascinating way of, of looking at uh, mental health. And it's it's a huge shift, as you said, from her early career, uh, where that isn't so much a uh, part of her, her public image or the image that she is portraying for the public. Um, now, obviously, Kusama um, has had this resurgence um, and her, her exhibits now regularly uh, sell out tickets at the drop of a hat and they're doing uh, wonderfully. And that is part of um, why I enjoyed this book so much because it is a very clear-eyed look at Kusama's earlier years, but 
unlike um, a museum exhibit catalog, for example, you situate her so well in global art currents and developments related to um, which artists get uh, selected for, um, as you said, that that in that Met exhibit, the dealers really sort of drove what Ameri- this idea of what American art looked like. And so who they selected maybe didn't reflect uh, who was producing art in America at the time. Um, but also the, these kind of international reflections on uh, fascism and World War II and uh, what it means to be an artist at that point in time. Um, that's it. Um, it is a fascinating book. I could talk about it all day, uh, but we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, might I ask just uh, what you're working on now? Thank you for asking that question. Um, after the graduation, I started working on uh, the arts from Southeast Asia, especially from the Philippines and uh, environmental issues. So that, and then we edited a volume about uh, Cold War and South, East and Southeast Asia book. Uh, I was initially very interested in looking at world from the global south. So I went back and right now I'm really sort of like coming back to uh, Japanese art, but more contemporary time period. So what I was interested in uh, the last research project about the Southeast Asia is really an indigenous art movement. And they were trying to locate original culture and uh, um, philosophy about nature in indigenous people's traditions. And that became very uh, strong right after uh, President Marcos lost power in the Philippines in 1986. And in Japan now too, because of the urbanization and uh, uh, the provinces are suffering from uh, population decrease, they're trying to uh, find a more alternative way of thinking about Japan, especially artists and art- artist producers. So right now I'm looking at uh, uh, urbanism and also uh, what kind of development that are going on in the rural areas by reflecting some more traditional Japanese values and needs. Uh, Japan especially had, uh, you know, as everyone knows, that it it used to be a feudal society and there were many feudal laws and each district had very peculiar culture and right now, uh, I think some artists and art producers are mining on that to create some uh, interesting artworks or uh, art projects that can bring out uh, alternative thoughts to more homogenized uh, global uh, global tendencies or globalism. Globalism. So that's that's what I'm working on right now. That sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see how it um, is instantiated in a new book or a, an exhibit, whichever you, you opt uh, to do. Um, so thank you very much for speaking to us today, and I hope you have a lovely day. Goodbye. Thank you.